morning is going to stay right in line with what we did this morning with our kids. We're going to talk about prosperous homes today. Prosperous homes. And so I want you to open your Bibles a couple of places. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 for a few minutes, and then we're going to end up in Joshua 24. So we'll give you those first two. I have a few more passages. They'll be up on the screen, and again, they're also on the church app, so you can check them out there. Prosperous homes. We've been talking about the prosperous soul and the importance of our souls prospering. That God tells us in his word that he's designed for us not to just get by and survive, but he's designed us to thrive, to prosper, to excel, to have exceedingly abundantly more than we ever dreamed or imagined in every aspect of our lives. Our souls being that part of us that's kind of the unseen, or not kind of, it is the unseen part of us. It's the internal, it's the, the, the emotions, the memories, thought life, that the thing that drives us, it's that part of us. And when we're making a decision, it's our soul that wrestles through and, 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 and decides and weighs and balances. It's our soul, and most importantly, our soul that communes with God, that is in relationship with the Lord Most High. It's our soul that communes and fellowships with the Holy Spirit and Here's his voice. And so it's so important for our souls to be healthy, to be doing well. And so as John, the Apostle John, writes to Gaius in 3 John, he says, I pray that you are doing well and you are healthy, that everything is going well in your life just as your soul prospers. That as your soul would prosper, that everything else in your life would be affected. And so, um, as we've talked over these last few weeks, looking at what does that look like in our lives? How does our soul prosper? And how do we go about cultivating a prosperous soul? I'm not going to recap everything because we'd be here for a while. But check those out online and you can uh, hear those if you missed any of them. But prosperous homes. You see, here's the thing. As we talk about a prosperous soul and soul keeping, the focus can really quickly become me. It's all about me and what, what I need and what I'm going through. And, and that's not a bad thing. You, you, you're the one who is in charge of your soul. I used that analogy of like a spring that, that flows down to the ocean, becomes a river. Well, if, if what's at the source is polluted, the whole river will be polluted. And so it's our responsibility to nurture and care for our soul, but it's not just about us. It starts with you, but then there's a larger portion of this. It's called community. See, community plays a huge part in a prosperous soul, and it begins in the home. It begins in the home. What is the home? The home is where you do life. The home is where you do life. It's where you eat and sleep and rest, where your family gathers, where you keep your stuff, right? Maybe, maybe more stuff than you need or want, right? I, we, we moved a few years back. We had sold everything we owned in this world save for what fit into a 12-foot U-Haul trailer. Six people, 12-foot U-Haul trailer. That's all we had in the world. And it was amazing. It was super freeing. But then we ended up a couple of years later moving back into a house. And I was blown away by how quickly stuff accumulated in that garage. 
It's incredible. So usually where your stuff is, that's home. But it's more than that as well. I know uh, Megan and I were on campus at Life Pacific College this last uh, Friday and talking to new students. And, and so one of the things we would say is, well, where's home or where are you from? And while that they're describing a place or a location or, or, or community, uh, a, a town, really over the next few weeks, their dorm room will become home. That campus will be home. And while home back there has special value and meaning, it's just home becomes that place where you're doing life. And so we understand this, that home can shift. Home is really about relationships. It's really about relationships, about the people that we live in. I use the word community, and we use community in, in regards to the town that we live in, right? We, li- we live in the, or we're in the, the community of Glendora, that this is a community, that this neighborhood is a community. Uh, but it's more than that. In this morning, for our purposes, we're going to talk about a different kind of community. By the way, let me just say right up front, I'm going to focus and talk a lot about kids and raising kids this morning. That does not mean, though, that if you don't have kids or your kids have grown, uh, that, that this isn't for you. Because part of what we're talking about is community and the fact that our relationships overlap. That while I might not have kids, maybe it's a, you're in a place where one day I want to have kids. Well, pay attention. Get prepped ahead of time. Or maybe your kids have grown and they're adults, but there's other kids in our lives, whether grandkids or, or, or uh, nieces and nephews, and even right here at Thrive Church, that as a church family, as a church community, that we would take on a responsibility towards the children even here at this church, even if they're not our, our, our flesh and blood or our, we're related that way, we're part of the kingdom. And so uh, I encourage you, just kind of tune in to what the Holy Spirit would say. Here's my favorite definition of the word community. It's found in Acts chapter 2, verse, verses 42 through 47. Speaking of the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone was filled with awe and uh, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Say common. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Community, common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So community is about spiritual community. It's about life together as the body of Christ. They were together and had everything in common. We live in a world that wants to look at the differences What I have versus what you have. What I've achieved versus what you've achieved. And we can can stand in a room and size people up and determine where we stand status-wise, influence-wise, just with a glance. But this community was a community where everyone had everything 
in common, where those dividing walls were being torn down and where people engaged with each other in, with, with their newfound faith and identity in Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters. This is the kind of community that I want to focus on this morning as we talk about the home. And while some of, again, what I'm going to talk about will ap- apply specifically to your home Also, just keep thinking, there's something larger that God is wanting us to capture this morning. So let's talk about prosperous homes. Last week, I I shared about Sabbath and the importance of keeping Sabbath. And and one of the points I made was that Sabbath is a time that's intended for relationship, to be with family and friends, to to enjoy those life-giving relationships. And I'd made this statement that our culture often puts greater value on work than on family. That our culture often puts greater value on work than on family. If you're a contributing member of society, it's not measured in, well, tell me about your family. It's measured in, what do you do? In fact, we do that without even realizing we meet someone and we say, hey, how are you? What do you do? How often do we say, hey, tell me about your family? And maybe we perceive it as being too personal or intimate, but I believe it's one of the tactics of the enemy to drive a wedge between people and also to communicate to them that what you do is more important than who you are and the people that you live with. We need to turn that around. We need to turn that upside down. I remember when... uh, when we came to this church, I got the call to be the pastor, and uh, a couple weeks later, I went, came up to San Dimas to the coffee clutch with uh, one of the representatives from our district, and Pastor Dave Turner, who was the, the pastor at that time, met me there, and the three of us sat and had a really good cup of coffee, and, you know, and, and Dave, Dave said to me, Pastor Dave says, well, you know, just ask me whatever you want to ask me. Like, what do you want to know about the church? I said, well, tell me about your family. Tell me about your family. And he kind of looked at me. He had this kind of weird look on his face. He's like, really? And, and his question to me was, well, why are you asking about my family? Because usually what you do when you go into a new church, hey, I want to know how many people are there and do they tithe? <laughs> Let's be real, right? What's the budget like? No. What's the vision? What's the culture? Those are important conversations. I said, tell me about your family. And he said, why? And I said, because I believe I can learn more about this church by hearing about your family, your relationship with your wife and your kids, than I can just looking at numbers and spreadsheets and vision statements. If we want to know people, let's lead with, hey, who are your people? Who's your family? Tell me about your family not what you do. That was a little side thing. That's not even my notes, but <laughs> it sends a message to our families when we start believing the lie that work is more important than the home because they start believing that lie and it affects our children and affects our home. And I believe that much of the state we're in as a nation is because of the decay in the home in that regard. Joshua 24, verse 14 through 15, says this. This is Joshua speaking to the people of Israel. He says, Now fear the Lord 
and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, say it with me, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. I always joke about verses that we put up on our walls, right, in our homes. This is a good one to put up on, like, in your living room. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua draws a line in the sand. And he says, listen, you have to make a decision. You can worship those other gods, whether it was in Egypt or the ones you've picked up along the way, including a golden calf. You can choose to serve them. But you need to make a decision because you can't do both. You can't worship Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim out of the same mouth where you worship these other gods. It's not possible. And so you need to make a decision. He draws a line in the sand and then he says those words, but it's for me and my household. We will serve the Lord. Do you hear the responsibility that Joshua takes? He doesn't just say, hey, as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord, and I hope my family comes along. Kind of wishful thinking. He says, as for me and my household, as the one who is in the place of authority over my home, over my household, and over generations to come, we will serve the Lord. It's a statement of fact, not a, a statement of even hope. He takes responsibility for the people in his care. We have to take responsibility for the people who are under our care. We must. It's mandated by the Lord. He says, we will. Here's the thing about this passage. It sounds like Joshua is talking about something he's going to do. Hey, from this moment on, the decisions we make, we're going to serve the Lord. And I'm, I'm deciding here to, to teach my family and raise them right. What's amazing about this passage is just a few verses later in verse 29, Joshua dies. That he made this statement at the end of his life. See, he makes this statement out of a place of having lived a certain way, and he ends his life with a confidence knowing that the way that he has led his family will lead to generations beyond him even being alive who will serve the Lord. That means that way before that, Joshua made the decision, and before he announced it to the people, he drew a line in the sand for himself. And he had a conversation with his household that went along the same lines, I'm sure. Except there probably wasn't the option in this house. I've talked about how in our home, when guests come to visit, especially when our kids were little, their friends would come over and we would say, in this house, we do whatever. We don't talk back or we sit down at the table to eat. In this house, Joshua sat down with his family and said, in this household, not just for now, but for generations, we will serve the Lord. You see, Israel had struggled from the moment they left Egypt 
And beyond even going into the promised land, they struggled with the ways of the world, the things that the world offered, the pressures to conform, to be like all of the other people and to serve their gods. God says to the Israelites, come out and be separate from the rest of the world. But there was a draw and an appeal to the rest of the world because they didn't even realize the fullness that God had for them. And so they kept adopting and taking on all of these other gods and their ways and their customs. And it was ongoing, like I said, with, from the golden calf to the Asherah poles, all the way on, up into when they, they come to, to, to uh, Samuel and they say, we want a king. And he says, why do you want a king? God is your king. And they said, we want a king so that we can be like the other nations. And they wrestled. Can I suggest this morning, we wrestle with the same pressures. It comes in a different packaging. But the enemy is seeking to destroy the lives of our families. He is seeking to destroy the lives of our children. And I'm not talking about something theoretical. This is real. He wants to rob them of everything that is life-giving. And if he can use us to stifle them, he will. If he can lie to us and get us to introduce things and bring things into our home that will limit the growth and the flourishing of our kids, he will. And so we have to take a stand in our homes. It is our responsibility to stand in the gap for our children and for our grandchildren and for our great-grandchildren. It is our responsibility to stand in the gap for the children around us. What we did today in taking those cards is saying, I am taking responsibility for a child that I didn't give birth to, that I haven't raised, that I didn't father, but, but they are part of the kingdom. And I will take it, to join in and be responsible. Not completely. It's a partnership. Why? Because we live in community. To cover these kids in prayer. Because the enemy is coming against them. We have a responsibility to guard, to encourage, and to train. I feel a little fired up this morning. But this is critical for us, church. This is critical for us. Thrive Kids exists not to provide childcare so you can come to church. That every teacher, every volunteer, everyone who serves with our kids is training children up in the ways of the Lord. So that they will know him and serve him and, they, and follow him. But more importantly, they're there to partner with you. Because you are the primary discipler of your children. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> My first point this morning. This is the most important job you have. This is the most important job you have. Megan and I were pastoring in Alaska, and we were struggling to, to manage the load. There was a lot. I was working full-time. Megan was working full-time. We were pastoring a church. We had a lot of other issues and things that were going on. We were struggling in our finances, and I was feeling overwhelmed. And I went to a friend of mine, Pastor Richard Irwin, who is like a father in the faith to me. And I said, you know... Here's where I'm at. Here's what's going on. And he, he like, thumped me in the chest is what he did. Um, like, like, right here, he's a shorter man. And he just kind of looked at me and went, dink, 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 like, right on my sternum. Like, 
I'm like, ah. Oh. And he goes, and he just locked eyes with me and he says, listen, you get one shot at your marriage and one shot at raising your kids. He said, you have your whole life to do ministry, but you get one shot at your marriage and raising your kids. Don't get it out of order. Those words stuck with me. I love the church. I love getting to serve in the way that I get to serve. I believe that God has called me to this and called my family to this, but you better believe that my wife and my kids come first. And not just because Richard said so, but he helped me understand God says so. That is my most important job. Your family, your home is your most important job. See, we have a lot to do, don't we? Your life is full. My life is full. We have a, a kid in tennis. We have a kid who plays football. He's playing JV and varsity. We have two kids in college who live at home. Our lives are full. Just keeping track of our kids and getting them to where they need to be. Our lives are full. So what, we, what do we do when we're busy? We prioritize, right? At least we should. We make a list of things that, that has to get done, and then we rank it. What's important, what's, not, what, what's most important, what's least important, and then we do what? The most important. It's the big rocks. Have you ever heard the analogy, the professor, the rocks, the sand, right? It doesn't fit if you put the small stuff in first. You have to put the big rocks in first. You can Google that illustration. I don't have time to get into it this morning. We will give time to what is important and what we value the most. Look at your calendar. Is your family getting the best of you or the least of you? And what's the filter through which you make decisions on how you will spend your time and who you will spend your time with? Does your family and your spouse come at the top of that list? Or if you're single or you don't have children... Who are the life-giving relationships in your life? Who are the people that you know you need to be spending time with in community? And here's the thing. This drives me crazy. I'm going to go off a little bit here on this. This hands-off approach to parenting is junk. It is a lie from the enemy. Well, I want to force my kids. I don't want to tell them what to do. I just want them to figure it out for themselves. They will not figure out for themselves. It is your job as a parent to train up your child, which means you got to grab the reins and say, here's what we're going to do. Here's the right way to think. Yes, we're going to church this morning and next Sunday and the Sunday after that. And I tell you what, I know my kids in my house I'm like, as long as you live under this roof, we're going to church. Well, they're a teenager now. That is the worst time to let go of the reins. And I'm not just talking emotionally. I'm talking intellectually. Their brains are going through a process of change where they're not going to make the right decision. That's why 14-year-olds don't drive. And I'm kind of iffy about the whole 16-years-old thing. I had a high school student doing like 80 miles an hour down my street the other day, and I'm thinking, that's why my insurance rates are so high. <laughs> Don't let go of the reins. It is your responsibility. And, and Okay, do you want this to be sobering for a minute? You for God and give an account, and he will say, 
Did you train up the children I gave you, my children, the ones I entrusted it to you? Did you raise them in the ways of the Lord? Or did you take off a hands-off approach? Hands-off is the way of the world. As long as you have influence and have a voice, use it. By the way, you're not your kid's friend. You're their parent. I heard someone say once, and I love these words, if you want to be their friend later in life, be their parent now. But if you're their friend now, you won't have either later. All right. I think we're on the same page. What does God say in Malachi 2.15? Has not God made, uh, the, the one God made you, speaking about marriage, and what he's actually addressing is the fact that he hates divorce. This is in the context of why marriages shouldn't end. He says, you belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. It is no secret that divorce is tearing up families and ruining and wrecking the lives of children in our country. Because they have a broken idea of who God is, who the Father is, when the home disintegrates. What is God looking for? One of your jobs as parents is to raise godly offspring. In fact, as parents, that's your only job. There's other calls that God has on your life, but at the very core of this, he says, you need to raise children who love me. And it's not a suggestion. Proverbs 22, 6, I've quoted it and we read it last week. Start your children off in the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not, return, they will not turn from it. They might lose their way for a while. But if you've done the work on the front end, when the going gets tough, they're going to come back to what they know is true. But if they didn't get it in the first place, They're in the wind. It's the most important job. Secondly is this. It starts with you. It starts with you. As we've talked about soul care and and, and, and cultivating a prosperous soul, if you don't have it to give, they won't get it. Pastor Wayne Cadero said this, you can teach what you know but you ultimately reproduce what you are. You can teach what you know, but you ultimately reproduce what you are. When I first heard that, I was like, dang it. (laughs) Because do as I say, not as I do, doesn't hold water. If you're saying that, you are lying to yourself. Another phrase is this, more is caught than taught. But I like what Wayne said because it puts responsibility on us as parents. That you will reproduce what you are. By the way, this isn't just true in parenting. This is true in life, in leadership, in discipleship, in people who follow you. What is it that you want to see produced in the people in your care? Whether at work, in church, in, in whatever arena... Ultimately, at the end of the day, you're going to reproduce what you are. So the question is, what are you reproducing? 
What are you reproducing? What are maybe even some of the things you see in your kids that you're like, I don't like that. It might be time to come back home because it starts with us. I'm sorry. I'm just, right? Again, like I said last week, I'm, I, it's not like I got this all figured out. This is, this is a battle. It's a battle for the lives of our, our, our families. And we need to be ready to go to war. Love what Joshua said, as for me and my household, my house, speaking of generations that he would never even meet, I know they're going to serve the Lord because I've done a good job in my lifetime of training them up and raising up the right way. What are you reproducing, not just in this lifetime? What do you want to see in your grandkids and your great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids? I love hearing about families. When we were at Life on Friday, they were talking about a student that's there as a fifth generation to go to Life Pacific College. Talking about the grandparents and the great-grandparents, right, going back who committed their lives to the Lord. That's the kind of heritage that we should desire. Disciples produce disciples. It starts with you. Third thing is this. There's no substitute for time. There's no substitute for time. Some people say, well, it's quality over quantity. And I say, no, it's both. It's both. It's quality and it's quantity. Your kids need you around. We got stuff to do. There's work to be done. There's jobs to, right, that we have to go to. But I think there's so much that robs us of time that we could be spending with our kids because of fill in the blank. By the way, I'm tired, and I use this all the time. But we've got to put on our big boy pants and our big girl pants, And say, you know what, I'm tired, but my kids need me right now, so I'm going to put off that nap so I can be with my family. I know I am meddling so much today. (laughs) It's quality and it's quantity. As a parent, you get 936 weeks from the time your kids are born to when they graduate high school. 936 weeks. That's not a lot of time. That's 3,000 hours a year that you get to disciple your children. By the way, to contrast that, and that's 3,000 waking hours. That's not the whole year. Some of you are doing the math. You're like, there's more than 3,000 hours. No, that's hours that we could say you have time. They're awake. You're awake. On average, 3,000. By the way, if your kids come to church every Sunday in a year, and they, and they go to Thrive Kids, and they sit under the quality teaching and the amazing men and women who lead, they get about 40 hours a year. 3,000 versus 40. Remember I said that you are the primary disciplers of your children. And in the same way, like people who, like teachers in the room, when parents come and they're like, it's your job to teach my kid. No, 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 no. It's your job to teach your kid. I'm I'm the supplement, right? Church is the supplement. We're going to help you and we're going to help your children. But we cannot shirk the responsibility to train our children. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Say that with me. 
impress them on your children, not suggest them to your children. Impress them on your children. Press them in. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Do you catch that? You got to be present to do those things. Talk about what God is doing. Talk about his goodness. Have conversations around your table. Understand that your children are craving, hungry for, long to hear about God from mom and dad. And I would say for dads, dads in the room, can we just have a moment? That the tradition and the culture in the church in America is that's mom's job to do that. Baloney. Junk. Lies. Dads, pick up the mantle of leadership in, the chil- in your children's lives. They are longing to hear their dad proclaim the praise of God and speak the truth of God into their lives. They need it desperately. All right. Last point. You're not alone. You're not alone. We're going to end up end on a couple of practical things. We as a church are here for you. We want to partner with you. Our, our, our Thrive Kids team, which is led by my wife, Megan, who's back there right now teaching, and an amazing group of men and women, young and old, saying, we, we want to serve your kids, but we also want to partner with you. And so we have a, a curriculum that we've been using over the last, about the last year. It's called Orange. It's a funny name, but I want to explain what it means. Orange is, is after much prayer and, 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 and comparing different curriculums, we landed in Orange for this reason, and for this reason primarily is this, is that Orange is set up to resource parents more than just teach a Sunday school class. In fact, Orange, they call it Orange for this reason, uh, red representing the home. Red is the place of nurture and love. Yellow represents the church, the place where our lights are supposed to shine. And when you combine red and yellow, what do you get? Orange. So that's why orange. It's, uh, it's quickly becoming one of the most well-regarded uh, curriculums in the nation. Um, and, and they have resources like you can't believe. And so I want to talk about a couple of those. You have in the seat back in front of you uh, one of these uh, if they're, they're, sh- they're kind of scattered throughout the room. If you need one, just raise your hand. We'll just pass them out. I think there's a couple at the back. Um, but if you need one or you maybe share with someone else uh, this morning, I want to walk you through what's called phases. This is called phases. This is our family ministry map here at Thrive Church. You guys have one? Let's grab one. Our, our primary ministries, we have Thrive Kids, you can see kind of right across the top, Thrive Kids, J12, and in our Thrive Youth. And this timeline spans from birth to when they graduate high school. So that's that 936 weeks that we were talking about. You know this because you lived through this, even if you don't have kids. You didn't need the same thing at every season of your life in, in maturing. 
right? As a teenager, you needed different things, different kinds of input. As a kid, you needed certain, your brain was taking in information in a certain way. And so what the folks of Orange have uh, determined and come up with and distilled and studied is this. You can see that at each stage, preschool, elementary, high school, and, uh, and middle school, uh, like for instance, at preschool, your child thinks like an artist. They think like an artist. Like everything is just, they're discovering everything. Everything is new, Right? Finger painting happens in preschool. And I want to just paint and discover and colors and everything is new. They think like an artist, but then in elementary school, they think like a scientist, which is why they ask the question, why? Why, 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 why? Because they're wired like a scientist. They want to discover. In junior high, though, in middle school, they think like an engineer. Now, not just why, but I want to understand how it all works together. How do the pieces fit? And then in high school, they think like a philosopher, right? Which can drive us as parents a little crazy, right? And I'm like, are we having that conversation again? But you see those different phases that they go through. I'm not going to go through every detail. Um, I also know this. The font is a little small. I, I designed it and then I printed it. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so... But this is a resource for you to take, and we're going to have these available every week. We're going to have them on our website, but this is a resource for you. Now, here's what I love about Orange Curriculum. We're not trying to teach kids in preschool things that middle schoolers are learning. Orange Curriculum, they've done their homework, and they've designed the curriculum to be age-appropriate and age-specific, to be relevant to the needs that those kids have at that time of their life. By the way, we use Orange all the way from our, our babies all the way up through high school. And so we have a continuum and a continuity in our curriculum all the way through. Um, and so take this, use this. This is a tool for you, just kind of a cheat sheet. To understand, as my child moves into a different phase, what are some of the things that they're going through? Discerning the seasons. Jesus said that we need to discern the times. We need to discern the seasons our kids are in. Hey, your parents tell their little kids, you need to just grow up. Are you kidding me? Like they have control over that, right? I always say something towards some adults, you need to grow up. But, but kids are kids. And so we need to engage them at the stage that they're at. And then finally, the last resource that we have that we want to provide for you is another app, actually. Two apps in three weeks. This is pretty amazing. Um, But it's not one we developed. It was one that was developed by the folks over at Orange. And it's called the ParentQ app. You can go to the parentq.org app, or you can just search in the app store for the ParentQ. Here's here's what is so amazing about this. So the ParentQ app... Uh, syncs with the curriculum that we're using. And so you can go in there, you can add your kid, uh, and, and it'll ask some information. By the way, the data that you put in isn't shared with anyone. It's, it's held just with on your device. You can also find our church and, and link to our church in the app. But what the, church, the Parent Q app does, as a parent, you can take it. it well, let's do this. Why don't we just watch a video about it? Can we, can we get that going? Check this out. From the day your child is born to the day they graduate, you have 936 weeks. 936 weeks of soccer practice and homework, 
and teaching them to use deodorant. 936 weeks to instill values, to build character, and to prepare them to face the world. You want to be a great parent, and we're here to help with each moment of parenting gold. Driving your fourth grader to practice. Saying goodbye to your 10th grader as he's walking out the door. Eating tacos in the kitchen with your 7th grader. Tucking your toddler in at night. These moments happen every week, and we want you to be aware of the time you have left, because when you are, you do more with the time you have now. We cue you with easy, just-in-time ideas of things to say, things to do, and things to think about to connect with the heart of your child. Our cues are grounded in God's big story, so your child can discover the power of faith in those everyday moments of life. Every cue fits the context of your child's developmental phase. We cue you when your high schooler won't leave their room, your middle schooler won't pick up their clothes, your two-year-old won't stop talking. We help you understand these moments, and we help you connect. You only have 936 weeks. You can't afford to waste them. Parent Cue. It's what we do. Download it for free today. It's a great tool. I want to encourage you, download it, use it for your kids. It's a great conversation starter for the younger ages. They actually have YouTube videos that you can watch with your kids, um, stories that they tell, and well, actors, it's, it's really well done. Uh, for your, your middle school and, and high school students, uh, whatever lesson they're learning at youth group on Thursday nights, uh, the cue is going to be synced up with it. So whatever verses and whatever discussion points it suggests for you. And it's just that. It's just kind of cueing you on some ideas. It's a tool. It's not the whole thing. It's just a tool that you can utilize. But it'll help continue that conversation for you with your kids. One of the things that uh, I like about it is that it has a countdown. And it tells you how many weeks you have left. And you see that number going down you start realizing, oh my goodness, this is going a lot faster than I, than I thought it would. Um, so check that out. Make use of that um, and, and allow the Lord to use it in your home. Maybe once a week as you sit down around the dinner table, you can pull out that app as a parent and go, hey, we're going we're gonna to talk through some of these things. We're going to ask some of these questions. We're going to read a verse together. And now all of a sudden what they're learning on Sunday and what you're even leading in the home is connected. And, and kids start realizing, wow, this, this all makes sense in the bigger picture. God's big story. Amen? That sound good? Hey, let's stand together as we close this morning. We've covered a lot of ground today. We've covered a lot of ground. But this is important stuff for us. It's important conversations. Whether you have little kids in your home, no kids in your home, whether you're single, maybe just moved into a college dorm, wherever, whatever your home looks like, let's take responsibility for caring for those around us. To draw some lines in the sand and say, Lord, as for me and my house, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, this morning, so thankful for you. Lord, thankful for, Lord, the way that you equip us, Lord, the way that you've called us to invest in our children, Lord, to invest in our families, Lord, the, the, the design that you have for families, Lord, to impact the world.
And God, I pray that we as a church family would take seriously the call to invest in the lives of kids. Jesus, you said that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God, I pray that we would give them heaven. That we would speak life. That we would declare destiny and calling. And that we would cover and guard their lives, their hearts, their minds. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, close together. We're going to just maybe a short chorus and just declare the praise of the Lord. Our prayer team is available. If you'd like to pray with someone after service for whatever need, we'd love the opportunity to pray with you. Let's worship together this morning. As a tour group, as we're like rushing through to get to the next thing, I'm like, I kind of want to do that for a little bit. God designed it. Remember, they didn't have written record like we do. They passed on the traditions and the stories and the word by telling them to their kids, by instilling them into their children, into their families. If you're not finding place in your home to talk about the things of God, it's not going to be a priority. It's not going to be a value. And we don't do the things we don't value. Proverbs 22, 6. Start off children in the way they should go, and even when they're old, they will not turn from it. There have been times where my kids don't want to come and sit at the table. But we've not made it an option. Hey, we, we, in our, it's the phrase in our house is, in this house, this is what we do. So when we have guests over, maybe staying or visiting for a few days, when we come to the table, what we say is, and we very rarely have anyone who's like, I don't want to do that. But it's just the, especially with little kids, now in this house, this is what we do. And so our kids get used to it, not just for now, but for their future, for your, for your family. It says in Genesis 3, verse 8, that God walked with Adam and Eve, or he walked in the garden and was there with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It's all about relationships. So time with family and time with friends is so important. It's an important part of the Sabbath. Which leads me to my last point. Sabbath is a time to play. It's a time to play. Recreation. We, we need it. We, we need to relax. In fact, the word, it's, the word itself is re-creation. Proverbs 17.22 says, A cheerful heart is a good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bone. The bones. What's the writer of Proverbs saying here? And when you're laughing, it does something. Now, God knew this because he designed us, right? Fearfully and wonderfully made. And all the things that scientists are discovering, God's like, yeah, I knew it. Did that. There's actually a reason for that. That when we laugh, that it releases chemicals and endorphins in our body, that cells are regenerated, our countenance changes, and our soul is elevated. We were designed to enjoy life, to play, to have fun. But he says a crushed spirit dries up the bones. When you are burdened and weary and tired and there's no room for laughter, it just sucks the life out of you. There's no vitality. So time to play. What does that mean? You have to answer that. Like I said, for Megan and I right now in this season, we just go to the beach. 
We love being at the beach, love swimming in the ocean, right? We don't have to, there's no, there's nothing that needs to get done. And so we've agreed on that because it's life-giving for both of us. And in our marriage, that's what we need. But I also, I love being in my garage. I love building things. I love fixing stuff. For some people, they're like, that is the very opposite of play, (laughs) right? There's literally anything else I'd rather be doing right now. It's life-giving for me. Megan loves reading. Just leave me alone and let me read a book for a while. Board games. We love playing board games in our house. We don't do it near enough, but when we do, we have a blast. Megan and I would love, we'll go watch a movie. It's just nice to sit in a nice climate-controlled environment in a comfy seat, right? It's just, it's something we enjoy doing. But a time to play, whether it's mountain biking or hiking. By the way, getting out in nature is one of the greatest ways to experience the presence of God. The book of Romans tells us that when we look at what's been made, we can't deny that there is a God, right? One of the reasons I live sitting on the beach is looking at those waves coming in. And just my mind just kind of wanders off into the expanse of the Pacific Ocean, right? I try not to go below the surface because that's a little freaky. But it... <laughs> So we need to learn to play. We need, need to learn to play, and, and, and in healthy ways, by the way. As a culture, the enemy has perverted play, right? And he's perverted it in our lives, and it's a healthy play. It's a play that honors the Lord. And so you have to figure that out in your life. But can I just close with this? Don't neglect the Sabbath. My prayer, my homework assignment for you even more than that is today, would you just take a few minutes and just think about your week. Maybe you're in a good rhythm of Sabbath already. Maybe it just needs to increase. Maybe the Lord's calling you to a greater, a greater degree. But maybe it's you're that, that, that kind of that pounding music that just has no rest in it. Start praying through and asking the Lord for help and how to instill Sabbath into your rhythm, into your family, into your life. I know, I know, I know, I know that God will meet you and he will bless you. Let's stand together as we close and invite the worship team to come. So Father God, I thank you for the gift of Sabbath. Not our idea, but your idea. And a good idea at that. Lord, I thank you that you remind us that Sabbath was made for the man, not the man for the Sabbath. That it is a part of your design to bless us. But Lord, I pray that in the midst of thinking that, that we not miss also the fact that the Sabbath is holy to the Lord. That there is an exchange that takes place. And and Lord, that it starts with us just declaring, Hosanna. Blessed is the, the Lord. Blessed is the name of the Lord. You are worthy of praise. You are greater than anything and everything that is a part of our lives. And so we honor you. So Lord, that we would keep the Sabbath day and that we would make it holy. God, I pray that you would clear schedules. That divinely and sovereignly, Lord, that you would create space and opportunities. God, that you would remove excuses and that you would break the shackles of slavery of a culture and of an enemy that would say, if you're you're not doing, you have no value. God, that we would learn to be in your presence and enjoy you forever.
give you praise. Amen. Let's worship together.